Welcome to What Else. This episode is the second part of my interview with BA. Uh, Some business to attend to first. I'd like to thank the Chicago Podcast Cooperative for hooking up the sponsorships and for their general support and coolness. Check them out at chicagopodcastcoop.com. Also, our sponsor for this episode is Field Notes, the beloved Field Notes brand. USA-made memo books and other products, including seasonal limited editions. Visit fieldnotesbrand.com or 400 North May Street in Chicago. They make super cool little notebooks. Check them out. Okay, enjoy this interview with B.A. Let's talk about uh, books. You're a big reader, I remember, from very early on. Yes. Uh, when we were kids. Um, do you remember what you got into reading first? What the first things that you really identified with were? Um, so, I remember being in... Summer before sixth grade, for some reason, I was allowed to go to the library at the junior high during the summer every day for, I don't remember, there was some kind of structured reading thing that I was a part of or whatever, and I was allowed to start checking out books from there. You lived Um, right by the school. I lived right right by the school, and this was like the summer before I started in that school, Mm -hmm. and I don't know the specifics, but I was always in kind of accelerated reading programs, so I'm guessing this was... I kind of remember doing workbooks and stuff, and then I was allowed to take out books. Um, I remember um, that I went on a little binge about stock car racing. I kind of, at that point, I I liked um, IndyCar racing. I was kind of aware of stock car racing, but I, I don't know that I even made the distinctions, but I remember reading a couple books. I don't know if I know the distinction. But, <laughs> but I, I I remember reading some books about, you know, guys that were like becoming race car drivers and then i remember a lot of the books that i liked and this is kind of like very um transparent but a lot of the books i liked were about kids that ended up living on their own away from their families and like the boxcar children Mm -hmm. um there was one that i remember about some kid that ended up like running away from home and living in the woods on his grandfather's old land and you know like trained a falcon to hunt for him and there's a whole series of books like that that i'm guessing speak to a certain kind of kid that's basically kids that ditch their families and you know overcome adversity um there was i was really into the black stallion books okay for a period and then after that, when I got older, I got went on a science fiction binge. I used to go to the Morton Grove Library every day and check out... I was trying to read through their whole science fiction section at one point. What age were you when you think you went into that phase, that sci-fi? Mm, that would have been probably late junior high. Okay. But as far as the stuff that, like, really, I mean, the kind of formative stuff, I'm going to name check Mr. Willison. Mm-hmm. Had me read... Terrence um, Willison. Yeah. 
he had me sixth grade teach English teacher. Um, he had me read Watership Down. He had me read The Hobbit. Outside of class, like just as an individual thing, he was like, yes. "Hey, kid, he I think you like this." Yes. Okay. Um. And then he talked to me about the similarities between um, the Hobbit and the Bible. And there's one other book that involved. Oh, and and um, the Chronicles of Narnia. Okay, sure. Um, about the central character dying, coming back to life stronger, starting out a duller color and being a brighter or vibrant color, representing him afterwards and betrayal and i mean there's there was um i I remember he just kind of hit me to that kind of concept that there was like those kind of overarching stories that Mm -hmm. carried through in in different stories Mm -hmm. that was huge that's pretty cool how do you think he keyed into that did he just see that you were a kid who always had books or how do you yeah i think he asked me about what i was reading and figured out what I would like. Mm-hmm. Another key moment like that was Mr. Rogowski in um, high school. Um, at some point, pulled me aside after class. And I, I still remember the encounter. He was kind of like, um, I thought I was getting in trouble. <laughs> and he was totally like, you know, he gave me some kind of like, you really don't like authority, do you? Or something like that. And I was, you know, like, no. And he's like, have you read On the Road by Kerouac? And I was like, wait, what? And he's like, Jack Kerouac on the road. Have you heard of it? And I was like, no. And he went and he got a copy and he gave it to me. That's pretty cool. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. And did it have, like, did it resonate? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was a huge, huge moment, that book. That's awesome. And then there was a book called um, Dahlgren by Samuel Delaney that uh, my cousin Paul had in his house. And I read it just randomly. The cover was cool. And it's the book that I've read the most often. I go back and reread that every couple of years. Um, Dune is another one like that that I've read a bunch of times. But Dahlgren, I've probably read 10 times since high school. And I'm not a big rereader of things in general. Mm Mm-hmm amazing amazing book that was like a different book to me every decade of of my adult life that's really interesting so i don't know i don't read i don't reread that many books there's a few i reread and it's kind of um sometimes i get a little something different out of it but sometimes i'm getting the same thing out of it which is still great but that's interesting that it's really that different for you each time yeah, it's Delaney was like a, a linguist, and the book is kind of disguised as science fiction, as a lot of his stuff is. Um, but it's really dense and ambiguous. In other words, science fiction is just kind of the the form or the setting. Yes, but it's not really the essence of the. Is that what you mean? It's yeah. not the essence of the story. Exactly. 
It's kind of how I feel about the Hobbit and the Lord of the Rings stuff. It's not really about like magical creatures and elves and stuff. It's about a mission and loyalty and sacrifice and stuff. To me, to me, those are the things it's about. It's not really about like weird looking orcs or something like that. I don't disagree with you <laughs> about that. That's what it's about. Um, but when you first started saying that, if you had stopped talking, I would have said, and I was completing your sentence, I would have said that it was about the old ways dying and a new way starting. Mm. And I think that's, um, to me, that's like a big key. I mean, I'm not talking about the story, obviously, but the big key is whenever you live, the old ways are going away and there's this new change that's overcoming. Mm-hmm. And I think that's why that resonates. And that's, that's why Game of Thrones is huge. And that's why zombies and vampires and all that stuff kind of speaks to people. Because right now, just like every other time, all the stuff that you grew up with and then that stuff just beyond the, that you, you know, that your parents had mm-hmm. the stories that they told you about the way stuff is all of that is disappearing. You know, all that is getting ready to, you know, get on the boats and to the Eastern lands or whatever. And then there's going to be a less magical time ahead, you know? Right. And I think we're always in the midst of that. And the great adventures are set in that. In, in, in that change it's the last great adventure it's not just that it's a great adventure it's the last time that that kind of magic is there and that just a regular guy being heroic can change the world and after that happens he's going to save the world in a way that nobody else can ever do that again and that's where we all see ourselves it's a great observation it's a great observation, right? Because at any point, that's true or could be perceived to be the situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome. Um, if you could travel through time, where would you like to go? Uh, is this like an interview question? <laughs> no, I think it's... No, I if think it's I just... travel through time, where would I like to go? Um I've pondered this question a lot. I would hope so. I would expect so. (laughs) I don't know that I've ever come up with a satisfactory answer. Mm -hmm. It doesn't have to be uh, definitive, but like a place you've thought about or a time and place you've thought about checking out. One answer is the future. Mm -hmm. Um, It's always you're putting yourself at a disadvantage, you know, when you think of it as like the practical things. Right. You know, because a lot of the scenarios is like, oh, if I could go back with what I know now. You'd have an advantage, right? You've got like this advantage. You'd also have a huge disadvantage because you wouldn't, you know, I mean, when you start thinking it through, it's like, yes, I might understand how to make gunpowder, but I wouldn't know how to feed myself, you know, so. Right, right. Um, yeah, you know, for a long time, it would have been like late 60s, early 70s, you know, London. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. 
Um, what do you think happens to people after they die? Do you think about it? I mean, do you ever? Um, like a lot of spirituality, I simultaneously think absolutely nothing. You're just gone. It's over. Your bag of meat and you rot. Um, but then at the same time, I also think that um that the universe is a living organism and that much like if you examine the visuals of like a representation of a fractal you st- see the same structures on a large scale or a small scale that like the idea of thought and self-awareness um is in our brains but then also Every one of our cells might have that same experience at a different scale and a forest might have that same experience and a planet and a, a universe and that, you know, it's all echoes of each other and tied into each other. And um, so the individual could be at all those different scales or parts of those different scales. And I think that, you know, works on a quantum physics vibration level and also on a, you know, Atman and Godhead level and all that. I mean, I I simultaneously can feel that and see that as true and also can call bullshit on it at the same time, though. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess I think that I'll live forever and my consciousness will live forever, but you know, everybody else is just going to die. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. That's awesome. Do you think your conception of that stuff has changed over time? And either based on thought you've put into it or knowledge gained or just, your orientation to life or mortality or things? Yes, it's changed over time. Um, Mm -hmm. I used to like to think of myself as a person that believes in magic and magical stuff. And I I say magic as, you know, spirituality or or whatever. Um, Definitely, I think in college or whatever, I was, felt like I was more in tune with that and Mm. believed in it more. Now, I feel a lot more skeptical. Mm-hmm. Um, yet my internal dialogue often takes the form of prayer or asking for things of something else. Interesting. Um, and always has. Mm-hmm. Which seems an odd choice for a skeptic. And... When I think about, you know, people that I know, that I've known who have died and talk about, like, 
them watching over or, you know, laughing at this or whatever. I guess at the at the same way I'm skeptical about religion, it doesn't really matter. Um, whether it's true or not when I'm saying it, it's it's just as true if I don't believe it as it would be if I believed it. When I'm saying it, it has the same power or importance. Mm, okay. Um, so as you know, I've got a young child, a seven-year-old. He's kind of taking his first tentative steps towards any knowledge of Judaism right now. Mm-hmm. I've never been practicing, although I definitely see myself as part, you know, it's part of the culture or that culture is part of me. Right. Um, but I guess I think that ritual resonates and is important and whether it's, you know, a dead show or a church or a jazz band or yeah, really, really getting deep into physics or, you know, a lot of different things. Um, marching, you know, off to war. Basketball played really, really well. Um, I, I think all those things, whether that's just that our brains release certain chemicals when we do those things, or whether it's we're in touch with the everything at that point, doesn't really matter. You can still like the rituals without saying you believe in God, there's still power in it. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's the same power and just as important, whether it's something or nothing. If that makes any sense. It does. It does. It makes perfect sense. It's very interesting. Um, so I, I'm happy to, you know, tell my kid, you know, if he asks me that I don't necessarily believe that there's a God, but that saying a prayer is still powerful and important because of what it does for the person saying it it doesn't matter it's the same thing if you can't know if you can't know it doesn't matter i mean it doesn't matter if it's objectively true or not is that what you're saying yeah yeah right um and it doesn't matter if it's good for the person or for society or for the world it's all it's all the same thing you're just experiencing the world in 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 the view where there isn't any of that stuff it's just you experiencing the world and if you're feeling like you're experiencing more of the world or more part of it for whatever reason if it's just an endorphin thing or whatever um that's just as good as if there is all that other stuff and you're really like opening yourself to it Mm -hmm. so you can kind of intellectually decide which you believe maybe maybe it's just kind of like again back to the quantum stuff you know of it could be a particle or a wave it doesn't matter it's behaving both ways so for example with your son is interested in this stuff um You'll, you said you talk about it. He's actually, um, he became interested in it and, you know, talking with his friends and learning about like that there's different religions and stuff. And mm-hmm. he's always known that we say he's a Jew and 
because he's an analytical guy. He knows that it's because of your parentage. Right. Um, so he started thinking about it, and especially when he found out he was going to go to this JCC camp for the summer and get his first taste of the stuff. You know, he, it, I heard him telling his friends, you know, like about they were talking about what they were doing for the summer, and he said he was going to go to the JCC, and he's like, it's like a camp for Jews. And he's like, um, we'll probably, we're going to swim every day, and, you know, Monday's pizza day, and we'll probably learn some prayers or poems or something. So that was kind of his initial conception. Yeah. And then a few weeks before um, he was driving in the car with my wife and he said, some people say that if you don't believe in God, that God's going to make your life terrible. But that doesn't even make sense because if God doesn't exist, how could he make your life terrible? This is like a seven-year-old coming up with this construct. So, So he's coming at it from both a space of, I think, wanting to learn about it, and he's already got a healthy dose of spec- of skepticism. Mm-hmm. Just basically, you know, from being around his parents and because he's a smart little guy. Right. It's pretty interesting. Yeah, so I, I, I'd be curious. I, I don't know if he's having any conversations with the counselors or whatever, but... Did you get any of that stuff growing up? Like, what was injected into you in terms of spirituality or religion or um my father was anti-religion okay almost religiously um and again going back to the like whether you're practicing something are you still that thing you know my dad was an engineer and Mm -hmm. by the time i think by the time i was like eight or nine he had stopped working as an engineer Mm -hmm. and hasn't since Mm -hmm. but is very much an engineer Got it. And has that, you know, militantly atheist view. And it's obviously something that was communicated to you as a Yes, as fact. Child. Yeah, okay. And um, where we grew up, um, most of my peers went to Hebrew school and had bar mitzvahs, and that was a very um, strong part of the social fabric mm-hmm. um, that I was resentful of not being a part of. And you lived like a block or two from a temple, right? Yeah, I lived a block from the synagogue. Yeah. Um, my mom's side of the family, which I was, you know, around, um, a lot of them were practicing and they were Sephardic. They're from the Middle East. So their experience was that they were in Rogers Park amongst all the European Jews and they had different customs mm. and different foods. And so they were, their perspective was as Jews, but as outsiders in the Jewish community as well. Interesting. So I have like a little of that, like as I, as much as I identify, you know, just being in the Lincolnwood Skokie area as the Jewish culture, I also identify as like Sephardic, which is different than that mainstream culture mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. It's pretty interesting, those distinctions, even within a smaller community. Yeah, as with Christianity or anything else. Right, that's right. If you go back to, like, the, you know, the Sunni Shia schism, that was, like, you know, I think it was Muhammad's grandfather um, or grandson. Like, which one was the line of secession was what started that, that schism. And, you know, that's now, like, practically two different religions. 
So you grew up in Lincolnwood, Illinois, right? Just yes. outside the city. Um, and you that's where you lived from, from birth through time you left home, right? Correct. Um, so this is, you were born when? 1967. Yeah. So do you think the... Do you think the world's a different place than when we were kids? Mm. Yes. Mm-hmm. In what ways? Um, it's smaller, easier to get around. Um, and there's a lot more access to information. Mm-hmm. I think those are huge differences. Do you think that makes people different than they kind of were when we were kids? Or do you think it makes the setting different? I think that um, the people are the same, but I think that... Um, the different strata of society are more exposed to each other than they were before. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea, I think of like, like where we grew up, um, we had a lot of access to knowledge and reference material and stuff that a lot of people in the U S even didn't necessarily have. And I think among our social class um is like kind of the internet pioneers and the information age pioneers and we like to think of like this thing that we had we have more of and then we disseminated it around the world and there's still some places that are information deserts you know but everyone's catching up to us but i think that um every other strata of society had their own web of information. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe it was in different forms. Maybe it was more or less verbal and more or more or less written. Um, but like the part that we don't get, I think is that we now have access to all that stuff. We think of it as like a one way thing, but I see. I mean, when we were kids, like, had there been hip-hop, there wouldn't have been any of it in Lincolnwood. Or it would have come in slowly, you know, repackaged by British people. That's just one very small example. Right, right. Do you think you understand people better now than you did when you were younger? Yes. Yeah. And what do you know in what ways? Like um I think I can identify with people better. Um in, your, in ter- like understanding them, like you can understand understanding that they're people. Mhm. As opposed to how do you think you looked at it before? 
Um, I saw just people as other. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I can put myself in their shoes, empathize more. Like, mm-hmm. um, Are you more interested in them as a result? Other people? I think I was always interested in other people. Uh-huh. I think I just saw it as something more outside myself. Mm-hmm. Whereas now I see it more as like a continuum that I'm part of. Mm-hmm. Um, when I see someone, you know, that's like mentally ill or, you know, homeless or on drugs or even someone who's just like angry and racist, I guess I can kind of see them as people more um, mm-hmm. rather than as an adversary or a character. Right. I've had enough experiences where I could see some even preposterous course of action, but I could see a continuum from where I've been to where they are and see that there's probably some course of events where that could have been me. Mm -hmm. And I couldn't see that before. Mm -hmm. That seems like a really good thing to develop for everybody. I mean, not for everybody to develop, but to everybody's benefit if even one person develops that perspective. Yeah, and it's definitely not like a constant thing, and it's something, I have to remind myself, you get stuck in your little thing or whatever, sure. but it's something that wasn't possible for me before. Yeah. It seems like to me that's one of the... That idea that you're talking about is sort of one of the fundamental things that to my mind would make the world a better place if more people could get on board with those yeah. ideas. Yeah, I, I would think so as well. Are there other things you think that would make, like what, what do people need to know to or do to make the world better, you think? Um... Well, that's an easy question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wait, we can solve this. Um, that's right. I think, you know, I mean, so the idea of service and selflessness, which I am the first to admit that I don't practice, it seems like, it seems like that is, if you, if that could be instilled. Mm-hmm. You know, people seem to get a lot out of it. Um, I have a favorite. I'll interject with this thing. So I have a favorite um, quote from some book about Zen Buddhism. And and the little parable is that there's a um, a student and the master. The student goes to the teacher, the master, and says, teacher, you know, I am discouraged. What should I do? And the teacher says, encourage others yeah you can't see it on the podcast but we're making wide eyes and nodding at each other yes yes we are (laughs) um so that seems 
I think of that a lot, and what you're saying seems to fit fit in with that. Yeah, you know, when I read stuff by like the Dalai Lama or whatever, you know, I mean mm-hmm. that that idea of that idea of service and doing something for somebody else seems very simple, but it seems to also, you know, that would would that lead to a better place if everybody did that? Yes. Do you think mm, do you think there's a relationship between like a sort of uh religious or non-religious environment you grew up in and how you see stuff like that or how you formed your opinions about how the world works? I'm always interested because I think some people you know, for example, grew up in a, in a super religious household and then they do like a pendulum swing and they rebel against it and then they eventually kind of come back to it a lot of times later in life. And I'm interested in whether or not you think that your environment informed your the way you develop your views about how, kind of how the world works and morality and stuff like that or not. I've always thought of myself as some kind of like mental superman. So I like to think that I overcame the adversity of not having a spiritual upbringing and willed myself to see all this spirituality. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, that doesn't explain why I'm like cynical. So <laughs> so there's something missing from that narrative, but I I like to think that I'm spiritually a self-made man and that I just um did you seek that out? Like do you think you were Yes. Okay. I mean, I remember even as a kid actively seeking that stuff out. Mm-hmm. I remember in high school, you know, going to the library and reading books on various religions. I remember choosing to do um a book report for a class um, satire in the search for utopia. Um, I remember doing a book report on, or a, um, a report on Hare Krishna and going to like the Krishna temple and reading the Bhagavad Gita and trying to understand what that was about. So mm-hmm. I was always, I was always very interested in spirituality that was not, Christianity and that was not Judaism. Mm-hmm. I was always very willing to dump on anybody who would like get something out of going to church or believing in Jesus. Mm-hmm. But if it was about like, you know, drum circles and drugs, or if it was, you know, about like a village dancing for three days in Papua New Guinea, then I thought there was like value in that. Mm-hmm. But I didn't think there was value in any of the western ritual of my area of the u.s and i've kind of come around to realizing that that's the same thing expressed differently i think that's my if there's an awakening there it's that what i was looking for somewhere else could have easily been that same thing that i was like thinking was the wrong thing Mm mm-hmm Mm-hmm. Well, it seems like there's, it's not uncommon to have a rejection of the 
overly familiar and then you sort of the appeal of the exoticism of something that is fundamentally the same thing but in a different yeah. package not to be dismissive of the differences between belief systems or whatever but right yeah definitely but I think that speaks to the fact that like yeah that we're either hardwired to look for that or we're spiritual beings and again doesn't really matter which to me I, I've I'm definitely not I don't, I don't have that need to know which it is I don't think it makes a, a difference functionally mm-hmm. sort of on a paths are related to religion or spirituality or how you know people function in the world uh, I feel like when we were, my recollection could be dubious here, but um, I feel like when we were younger, you were at a relatively young age sort of aware of political things and sort of what people, I guess, now would consider social or sociopolitical issues. Would you, do you think that's accurate? Yes. Where, do you, where did you get that from? How were you tuned into that? Because I feel like I... For example, by contrast, I think I was tuned into like either watching football or playing board games or something like that, and, and had didn't have a sensibility about that facet of the world. Um, I might credit that again to that radio show, The Midnight Special. So really? I grew up listening to Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan. Okay. Um, music about they were a lot of music about social stuff, you know, and. Phil Oaks and I mean just like a lot of this kind of folk music of the 70s and that's what it was about and I think I became aware of those issues through that that's interesting so it just kind of seeped in through the music it wasn't did you realize that that's what those things were yeah I think so I think I think that was kind of was that part of the appeal for you was that part of the appeal for you or was it just a musical appeal and then it happened to be about these things so it piqued your interest in stuff or well, as a kid, I think it was just musical. Mm-hmm. And then um, our friend Howard Fishbein mm-hmm. um, and I both kind of had that same musical background. And his he had older brothers who were kind of into that kind of hippie social awareness thing. And I think we hooked up at an early age. I remember us at least in, you know, sixth grade or whatever being discussing that kind of music and those kind of issues and so yeah i think it came directly from folk music which was played in my house a lot Mm -hmm. and did you ever have like an interest to like any kind of career sense or whatever to be involved in that to like go into politics or something like that or no never it's always been very repellent to me yeah what part of it Knee-jerk reaction. Politicians are bad. Right. Okay. Corrupts everybody. There's no honest ones. Even at a young age, you had that feeling. Yes. Yeah, interesting. I think that might have come directly from my dad again, distrust of authority. Right. Very interesting. I also, you know, well, I want to control everything i don't want to run anything (laughs) or have to tell anyone else what to do 
Have you been in positions where you've had to do that, where you've had to tell other people what to do? Yes. In work situations, is that? Yes. Yes, okay. I was a manager of personnel. And what was your your impression of that experience? I, as someone who doesn't like authority, but again, I like to control everything. Um, I came into I came into that position when I was relatively old and cognizant of management and its ramifications, mm-hmm. and of the fact that you know the people that I work with um, are people, mm-hmm. which Important. took a lot of yeah. years of working before I kind of got that. Um, so. I well, I may have made a lot of missteps along the way. Um, I worked very hard to um, if if I wanted a certain kind of performance, I, I worked very hard to communicate that and to make it possible, not to just say it and mm-hmm. give up on people. Mm-hmm. Um, in some ways, I have a very strong and specific personality, and I think that may make it hard for some people to work for me or with me. Um, but I tried very hard to do the best I could by the people who I was working with. And I tried very hard to view personnel management as a um, necessity of the job not who I was and to realize that by managing people, I was not doing work and that my job was to enable those people to do the work that they needed to do and try and do everything I could to offload any part of their experience that wasn't helpful to them doing that work Mm -hmm. so that idea of you're really working for them to put them in a position to be able to do what they need to do was how i was how i struggled to um look at that and sometimes more successfully and sometimes less successfully but that's that's the way i tried to do it did you enjoy it yes yeah okay i never thought i would but Mm -hmm. Oh, it's very challenging. I've I've had a, I've gotten to do a series of things that are very challenging and different while still being in the same field. So I f- I find that gratifying. Even in a way, the more difficult it is, the more gratifying it is to get through it. Mm-hmm. Over the course of any jobs, any kinds of jobs you've had since you were young through now, do you have like a f- do you have, do you think? Oh, that was my favorite job. X was my favorite job. Mm. No. Mm-hmm. Do you have one that do you have a least favorite job? Mm. The army was pretty bad, although <laughs> you know I got a lot out of it. Right. Um. Most of the jobs I didn't like, I didn't stick with. Mm-hmm. 
the ones I stuck with. There was obviously something I liked. My least favorite job um, lasted for one day. It was for the Illinois PERG, IPERG, Public Information Resource Group. Okay. Um, they, I was in Champaign at the time. They drove me to Peoria to canvas a neighborhood door-to-door asking for money um, for environmental causes. The um, the neighborhood that they put me in was um, a neighborhood of people that were on strike from Caterpillar. And almost every door I knocked on, um, if the people opened it and spoke to me, almost everyone wished they could give, give me money and then explain the strike that they were going through. And I had to spend a day doing that and never went back for a second day. I really didn't like asking people for money and that was about the worst situation. Yeah, right. Yeah, it sounds... The asking people for money sounds horrible to me too, just no matter what. And then when you factor in that setting, that seems pretty bad. That I wanted to give money to everybody I talked to, basically. Right, that's, yeah. That's a pretty... That's tough... I did some detasseling. That was pretty bad, too. Oh, you did down in Champaign, Illinois area? Yeah. Um, that sounds pretty tough. Yeah. So w- exp- explain the gig for... So detasseling, um, because the corn that's grown is proprietary and um, can't mate with other native corn um after the corn grows the male portions of the corn has to be removed which is detasseling and then there's roguing it's either the same I, I don't know the distinction but you basically have to cut off the pollen um producing parts of the corn so that it doesn't contaminate from one field to another mm-hmm. um the work is done in illinois by migrant laborers and so there's contractors that hire the migrant laborers to work, and then there's not enough of them. So then they hire high school kids and then college kids to fill it in. Um, the migrant laborers live in camps and um, get paid very low wages, well below minimum wage. And then the high school kids get paid slightly more, and then the college kids get paid slightly more. And they fill in with the cheapest labor first, and then you know, fill in with, with college kids who won't do it for less money. Um, the college kids are segregated into a different truck, um, because they do a worse job. The migrant workers are getting paid by the number of fields that they can rogue or detassel. They have to do it well. If they make mistakes, they don't get paid for, for that, um, area. So there's actually a truck of migrant workers following the truck of college kids to clean up the work that they do. Really? Um, So you're standing on a truck um, in the blazing hot Urbana sun. Uh, There's a lot of dust and pollen and presumably Roundup um, in the air. Uh, And the truck goes slowly through the field and you're tearing off the tassels from the corn. Um, which, you know, gives you blisters through the gloves by the end of the day. Your skin's like, you know, 
I mean, you're in the blazing sun. You're a college kid, so you don't think you need to cover all your skin the way the people who really do it, you know, have to do it. Um, yeah, brutally hot, brutally hard work. You're doing a terrible job. Um, the people that are getting paid a third of what you're getting paid are having to clean up the work that you do after you because their lives depend on it, whereas you're just, you know, trying to get a little extra money. And, um, yeah, it's a, it's a good object lesson in, you know, how people who aren't college students have to work to support their families. Yeah, that sounds pretty tough. Yeah, I didn't last very long on that either. And then, what, like, how would you, would you get up at the crack of dawn to do this, or how did this work? Yeah. Yeah, that doesn't sound good for anybody. No, not a good gig. Hmm. Did you work food service at the university system in college? I, I did briefly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I worked in the... Um, when, so, as I mentioned, I lived for one semester in the dorms at Allen Hall. Mm-hmm. And then I moved out into a house full of hippies, um, all of whom, or most of whom were former Allen Hall residents. And we all got a job doing food service there because you could eat for free. Oh, that's a good gig. And then, That part of it. Yeah. No, it was a super easy gig, which I still, you know, managed to mess up and... I think I, I'm sure I, you know, I got fired for attendance. Mm -hmm. Um, but there was also a lot of, you know, stealing food to bring back to the house. I remember at one point we had, uh, one of those boxes of milk, you know, the five gallon boxes yeah. of milk in the fridge. Nice. Yeah. Did you have the giant bin of cereal too? <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> But uh, yeah, no. But after that, I you know I did a lot of dishwashing around uh, Champaign Urbana, and then I worked at the Dunkin' Donuts night shift. Night shift at the Dunkin' at the Dunkin' D. That one actually lasted a while. I was there most of the summer. Mm -hmm. What did you do when you were there? Did you? I was a donut finisher and counter worker. Okay. So there's someone who fries all the donuts and puts them on racks, and then the second person frosts and fills them in between helping customers. I was the second person. Yeah. And then I was also the baker's assistant at Joomers for a while. That's another crack -dawn gig. And then I segued into the uh, being the um, kitchen steward, who is like basically the basically the same thing I was doing in the army, except ordering food and inventorying. Okay. Very interesting. So you were, like, during the workday, you're calling the distributor or whatever and ordering food for the... Yeah, set, which doing means? inventory, making the orders, unloading the trucks on the loading dock, and um, rotating all the stock in the freezers and whatnot. Coach, a lot of different interesting gigs. Yeah, you know, I used to basically have a job for a while until I made enough money and then somehow mess up and lose the job or stop going or whatever. And then, you know, when I needed 
to scrape together money for rent again or whatever the situation was, get another job. So food service is a great industry for that. Mm -hmm. In terms of just being able to pick up another gig. And yeah, if you're willing to show up, you can be a dishwasher. Mm -hmm. And there's always somewhere where the dishwasher just quit. And you're in the back, so you don't bother anybody. Right. So, you know, if you're willing, basically, if you're willing to show up, you can do it. And there's always more shifts. And if you need money, you you can work a lot of shifts and then you get burnt out and stop mm -hmm. going until mm -hmm. the next time you need money. Was there anything you liked about those gigs, like doing dishwashing and stuff? Yeah, you know, I'd get really high and just that kind of mechanical loading the dishwasher, unloading the dishwasher, like I'd get into a groove. Mm -hmm. It's actually pretty pleasant. Yeah, was it low stress in that sense of not having to worry about yes. people? and Yes. They needed me to. I mean, it was just like you don't yell at the dishwasher because yeah. if there's not enough dishes in front of house, things get really bad. Yeah. So it was just, yeah, normally like kind of could just stand there and do it and they'd leave you alone. Mm hmm. Is there a job that you would be interested in, irrespective of your qualifications or experience or so forth? If you could just pluck a job out of the air, walk in and, you know, take somebody's gig, is there one that you. Say, you know, some people don't really have a thing that they want to do or a job that they want to do and other people do. Like, do you have something that you're like, oh, I would love to do X? There's things I'd like to know about and mm -hmm. skills I'd like to have. Um, I'd love to get paid to ride a motorcycle. I don't know if that's a job that exists. Um, when I was at, at some point, I had this theory and I, I advised a bunch of people to do this and never did it myself, which was when you're looking for a new job, you should like make up the job that you want to have and then think of a company that you could do that at and then just like write the CEO or whatever. And the only one sure. that I came up with was um, at the time, you know, I was doing like pre-press and I knew how to work with printers and stuff. So I was like, I should get a job with BMW motorcycles um, where I would ride a motorcycle, you know, to like, they have like these, you know, demo events or whatever. So I would like right. ride a motorcycle to a different city and then like, you know, maybe set up a large format printer and make all the posters and stuff for the event or do some kind of marketing thing where it was like a combination of like demonstration of their bikes and the skills that I had with, you know, marketing. But basically if I could get, paid to ride around to different places on motorcycles for whatever reason that would be great what do you like about riding motorcycles like what's the, what parts of it are appealing to you um it's very much like how people who meditate describe meditation or how people who like yoga um describe yoga so when you're riding a motorcycle and you're doing it right um, 
there's absolutely no bandwidth to think about anything other than riding the motorcycle correctly and, you know, not dying. So because of that, there's the voice in your head is gone. Mm -hmm. There's no Mm -hmm. thinking about anything that's not operating the motorcycle and maybe the direction, you you know, that you've got to go or whatever, you know, your location. But there's so little room for to think about anything else other than motorcycling that you can you are taking in the sights and on some level the smells and the being out in the open air and the weather and stuff is a factor because you're in it instead of being out in your car. Mm-hmm. But not in that way where you're like, I am really enjoying the smell of this mown grass. It's like you're just reduced to a being who is staying alive on a motorcycle and being aware of the environment. And then kind of because of that, your enjoyment of the smell of mown grass is increased because there's no thought about it. It's just, it's just there. That's pretty interesting. I didn't realize that the the sort of meditative quality of it would be the primary appeal of this and also there's you know it's there's like a skill set and you're always working on the skill set and learning and you know if you're to survive doing it it's kind of how like people describe like you know flying airplanes or whatever you know it's like you have to know what your abilities are and there's the potential to increase those abilities but so do you find it relaxing to ride a motorcycle or is it stressful super relaxing okay Even though you need to be kind of like tuned in and specifically because of that. Interesting. Okay. When I work in Milwaukee, you know, till like five and then ride the bike back, come home totally relaxed after a stressful day. Even when I used to work downtown and ride my motorcycle, the 20 minute ride home. That was enough to get you in the zone. Got me way more relaxed than the, you know. 40-minute metro ride, you know, and walk to the metro station. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess I've had similar experiences riding a bike to work or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, when you're really doing it. I mean, for some... I mean, I remember when I used to... uh, In the Army, when we used to run, it was like the same thing when you... What they call, like, you know, the runner's high or the second wind. It's really, to me, just more about the brain turning off than you being like in the moment. That's right. I forgot you were a cross country runner, right? In high school. Yes, but I wasn't any good at it, but you, you did it though. Yeah. You ran the distances and I did for a couple of years and then, yeah, I ran the whole time I was in the army, obviously. Far out. Coach, I feel like we have a lot of other topics that we haven't even come to unpack and um, a lot of stories and anecdotes. I feel like we didn't even talk about any of the crazy s- stories in this little session. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm enjoying this format. It's a mm-hmm. good excuse to talk about things that you wouldn't necessarily talk about. Agreed. Agreed. Um, so I going to uh, whiz 
So I think we'll wrap up this session here. <laughs> Sounds good. I mean, I'm going to turn the mic off first and stuff. But, uh, and then um, maybe we'll do it again at your convenience and, and we can talk about some more stuff. Because obviously there's more, yeah. some more things to talk about. But I'm very happy to have had, have BA on the show. Um, Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. And I think people will, um, will get some good stuff out of this. I expect our several listeners will enjoy. Several could be overstating it, but um, yes, I hope so. Um, so thanks for uh, thanks for talking about stuff. On it's what been else? My pleasure. And um, we'll do it again and dig into more topics. So for our listener or listeners, uh, this has been what else with my special guest, my beloved friend, B.A., who I'm very glad was uh, willing to sit down and chit-chat for a while. Anytime. All right. And now let's, uh, let's have a whiz break and drink a water. Thanks again for listening to What Else? You can check out another podcast on the Chicago Podcast Cooperative if you're interested in more listening pleasure how about friendshipping Jen and Trin discuss friendship particularly between ladies they tackle the tricky stuff like how can I make friends as an adult how do I end a toxic friendship and more hope you'll listen again see you next time